0: Why don't we go ahead and kick it off? It's 5 p.m. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us, Steve, and thank you to all of of the folks in the audience. Um, This is It's Time to Heal, which is A16Z's uh, clubhouse room to cover the future of bio and healthcare through interactive discussions with industry leaders at the helm of innovation. I'm Julie Yu, uh, one of the general partners here at the firm, and with me are my A16Z bio and healthcare colleagues, uh, Jorge Conde, Vijay Pande, and Venkat Mochela. Today, our special guest is Dr. Stephen Clasco, who is, uh, who's many things, as we just heard, but um, uh, first and foremost, the um, current CEO of Jefferson Health, uh, which is, a, I believe, a $6 billion health system in the um, Philadelphia area. He is also the president of Thomas Jefferson University, the editor-in-chief of the journal Healthcare and Transformation, the author of multiple books on the transformation of healthcare, and um, as we just heard, a renowned DJ. Um, did I miss anything there, Steve? Anything else you'd like to highlight from no, the sure background? I'm sure my yours?
1: mother has a couple of other things, but, <laughs> but I think we can move on.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, we've got a lot of um, topics here to, t- to chat about today, so why don't we go ahead and dive in. Um, the, the thematic title for our show today was, Is There an Avatar in the House? Uh, from COVID to Consumerism and the Future of Virtual First Care. And um, I thought it was super interesting, Steve. I found this, um, this YouTube video of a TED Talk that you had done in, in uh, 2014. And the title of that talk was, What Will Healthcare Look Like in 2020? And um, it happened to feature you in, in what you called a leisure suit. And you were standing in front of this very fancy car. So for those who haven't seen this video, go check it out on YouTube and see what I'm talking about. But um, you you started the talk by articulating um, several major ideas about what healthcare would look like in 2024. Um, a few, I'll just list a few of them, and I'd love for you to you know give us a take on kind of how are we doing relative to what you predicted. So you know, one speaking of medical school admissions, you just told your story of yours. Um, you you said that in 2024, medical school admissions would be based on EQ, empathy, and teamwork. You said that patients in all 50 states would be able to access Jefferson Health doctors via telemedicine. You talked about um, the implementation of true uh, evidence-based medicine, um, predictive analytics to reduce uncertainty in the practice of medicine, um, ACOs that are actually accountable. Uh, You also talked about DNA vending machines for personalized medicine, which is a very cool idea. Um, and then ranking parameters for hospitals on things like physician happiness and collaboration. So now that we are, you know, 2021, just three years away from that, um, that, that set of predictions that you had made, um, how would you say we are doing?
1: Well, I think it's, it's pretty fascinating. It's uh, actually, um, I think, probably better than, than I might have thought. So let me just go through a few of them. So, so if you think about the first one of how we choose uh, doctors, we still accept uh, medical students based on science GPA, multiple choice tests, or organic chemistry grades, and somehow we're just amazed doctors aren't more empathetic, communicative, and creative. Like, like, duh, right? Um, and then we put them through a meat grinder. Uh, look to the left of you. Look to the right of you. One of you will get in. Um, and 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 so so at the end of the day, we did start a medical school when I was down in Florida uh, where we. Erased the objective criteria and chose students based on uh, self-awareness, empathy, communication skills and cultural competence. And I think one of the really interesting things is that we, we tripled diversity when we did that. Because if you want to think about a tale of two cities. There are folks in Philadelphia that spent $100,000 to give little Mary or little Johnny five tutors and um, uh, three, um, three sort of Kaplan type courses. Um, and that's without even photoshopping their picture on a lacrosse player or anything. And then there's another kid with a with a battered <laughs> Barons book, and, and that's just not an even playing field. So I think that that at the end of the day, um, the concept of holistic admissions is probably the single most important thing. And here's why it affects the people that are that are listening here, because you know, for all the reasons we're gonna talk about technology changing things, think think about how asinine it is. That the gateway to medicine is that I can memorize the Krebs cycle and all the enzymes. Um, I mean, that just doesn't make, it, that literally doesn't make any sense. So so I'll give you an example of one of our criteria that, that we used and why it's so important. We would take applicants to an art museum and there was this one piece and it's in one of my books, but it's, um, it's a woman in a white dress, a guy in a black turtleneck and a snake. And we go to an applicant and say, tell me what this picture is saying, what this art piece is saying. There's a woman in a white dress, a guy in a black turtleneck and, and a snake. Yeah, but what's it emoting to you? What's it telling you? Um, it's telling me there's a woman in a white dress, a guy in a black turtleneck, and a snake that couldn't get beyond what was actually there. There are other applicants that right away would tell the story, and it almost doesn't matter what the story is. So you might say, Steve, um, why does that matter? Well, I've delivered about 2,000 babies in my career, and it's easy to deliver a seven-and-a-half-pound baby to a normal 28-year-old. It's easy for me to say I'm on the other end, but, but it's, it's medically easy. Um, it's incredibly difficult delivering an unscheduled Down syndrome baby. And and there's a hundred percent chance that within a few years there'll be an IBM Watson or a Google Brain or something next to me that will be better than any human on the planet of taking a picture of that baby and saying, what's chromosomally wrong? Mm -hmm. But we're still admitting folks to be able to do that. But what what the patient asks is, doctor, what does it mean? And I've watched good obstetricians talk about the 21st chromosome or the medical complications. I've watched great obstetricians get the, what does it mean means, what does it mean to my image of a perfect baby? Mm-hmm. And, and say this is a beautiful baby, and I'll get you together with other people that have beautiful babies like that. That 30 seconds is often the difference between that mom and and, and that dad imprinting with the baby. So I think I think that's something that that that, that we've really started to make some real headway, and not not across. And I think we, we're still caught up, like we always are, with you know double AMC uh, multiple choice tests, et cetera. I think one of the other things um, that that's actually done pretty well is in um, is in analytics and data. And, and in fact, mm-hmm. in some respects, it's done too well. Um, you might know Anish Chopra and I are, are on a panel looking at um, sort of privacy and data governance. It would be a good thing for us to talk about as we get further, further into it, because there's so much data coming in and we're getting so much better at predicting. But the question becomes, how much privacy are we willing to give up as, as this uh, continuous data uh, comes in? The research supersite, um, we've actually done that in, in, in Philly. We started something called uh, Partners in Innovation, Education uh, and, and, and Research, and um, where we've actually brought folks together with a single IRB, uh, you know, competitive institutions that can actually do innovation, clinical research, et cetera, uh, together. I think the ones that have been that, that haven't happened for various reasons is um, um, you know, the telehealth in 50 states. I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous that I can practice physically in 48 states, but I can only practice telehealth in about 15 states. Mm-hmm. So if you think about banking, it would be like when ATMs happened, if every state needed a different ATM card and password, yep. that probably wouldn't have gotten through. So we need, some, we, we need to open up uh, telehealth in a very different way. And the other one that hasn't happened that I'd hope would happen, that we'd start to you know, ranking like U.S. News and World Report ranking and stuff is just ridiculous, it's archaic. You know, and in the TED Talk, I talked about things like, you know, patient satisfaction and, and collaboration and physician happiness as opposed to, you know, reputation score and, you know, what were the med cats of the medical students that, that you accept. I got, I got asked uh, by the head of uh, U.S. News and World Report to give a talk on the, on the humans of tomorrow because they were doing a hospital of tomorrow thing. And I got introduced, a very nice introduction, and I said, look, um, Dave, you might uh, never invite me back, but you're part of the problem. And I went through this whole thing. If I admit the kind of students that will be great doctors, I'll go down in U.S. News and World Report. And I go through my whole thing, which I thought was very scientific. At the end, he goes, you know, Dr. Quasco you're right. I said, I am. He goes, no, you're right. We'll never invite you back again. So I don't think we're really, really going to change their opinion. So so well, I think we've made progress, probably not as much well, as I'd like.
2: So, so Stephen, I'm, I'm curious to sort of push back and you see what you think about this, is that for clinicians that are patient-facing, I think you make a great point. But there's more than getting an MD necessarily than that. And we're seeing just very parochially uh more and more people getting mds and then let's say going to startups becoming chief medical officers you know working in drug design healthcare delivery all that stuff you know depending on, on what they're doing maybe actually in those cases knowing the krebs cycle knowing uh this other stuff actually is really useful and having that background uh, i'm curious what you think about that as a divide are these should these be two different degrees should they be two different disciplines um uh, what do you think
1: so I, what I, what I think is that um, we need to segment our classes, just like we we have to do consumer segmentation. So, um, you know, I, I went to Wharton in 1994, and and frankly, it was right when they changed their philosophy because they used to be the most quantitative school. They would get all, you know, you know, masters in finance or bachelors in in accounting from you know some of the best schools in the country, and then they realized that they needed some of those folks but then they also wanted to expand for other people that, that could benefit from an MBA, you know, in the, in the social sectors, et cetera. I look at it the same way. We, we're the uh, fifth largest medical school in the country. So we have 300 students a year. So the, w- w- the future that I see is that we say, all right, look, we wanna, each year we, we look at this and say, what would be ideal? Well, we wanna get maybe 50 physician scientists. And you're absolutely right. Vijay, those folks ought to be the folks that can absolutely, you know, memorize the Krebs cycle and had four O's in, in science and maybe even, you know, you know, came, come in with a PhD. We want to get, you know, a certain amount of folks that, that, are, that are entrepreneurs and going to go and, and, and start up things. So look at those skill sets uh, very differently. Maybe look at people that have already done some startup activity, et cetera. And then we want to have the other half of our class be really good doctors, some of them really good specialists. And one of the things that I've worked on is actually starting to look at simulation as as a way of looking at, um, do you have the right coordination to be a neurosurgeon? I mean, as opposed to, you know, uh, do you have the mindset to be a family doc? So one of the things we've done in our simulation center is start to give people a feel for what would be their best specialty. So um, I, I think we can segment it and not make it an either or and you know, I'm I'm not in any way, anyway sort of saying that the folks that have, you know, four O's and are going to do the research and you know develop the vaccines and that kind of thing. Yeah, they they need to be those people, um, but I but I think we miss a lot of folks that would be great, family docs, obstetricians, um, surgeons, etc. You know, because they didn't have that memorization mindset.
3: So now that you've run the um... It sounds like you've run the experiment, right? And opening the, the aperture for looking for talent and, you know, more diverse uh, medical students um, as they come out the other end of the, of the funnel. Have you seen, Has has your theory proven out, have you, have you gotten better doctors with higher EQ?
1: Yeah, but, but that's a great question. So, um, so we started this, um, we started this gosh, almost 10 years ago. And um, What was fascinating is when we first started it, so after your second year of medical school, you have to take what's called USMLEs, which is a multiple choice test. So the the way we had done this, there were 56 students a year, we we took into this SELECT program, which stood stood for Scholarly Excellence, Leadership Education Collaborative Training. They were the ones that we chose based on these these other parameters. And then the rest of the class, uh, we chose based on traditional parameters. So when you looked at um, the US MLEs, which is the multiple choice test effort after two years, the folks in the select program did not do very well. Uh, You know, maybe had an 80% pass rate. I mean, they eventually passed. Um, And obviously the kids in the the other one did their normal 97%. Once they passed though, then you looked at the clinical clerkships. We had more honors among the select uh, students than we did uh, among the, uh, among the traditional students. Um, we've tried to keep up with as many of them as we as we can. Uh, we found uh, that there wasn't any difference in who went into primary care, specialties, et cetera. Um, you know, I guess the ones that I've talked to and it's anecdotal, I guess the one differentiation would be frankly, um, I think the select students are sort of more excited and more optimistic about the future, the ones that, that, that have done residencies in our place or whatever, um, because, um, they, they really looked and said, you know, hey, you know, things are changing and that's good, right? So just to give you an example, um, when I graduated from Wharton, I got a, a million dollar grant to look at what makes doctors um, different than depending on the audience, either other people or normal people and how we handle change. And what we found is the way we select and educate docs, we've joined a cult around four biases, a competitive bias, an autonomy bias, a hierarchical bias and a non-creativity bias. And the non-creativity bias was sort of interesting, because we're as creative as anybody else. But when we ask anybody on this call, most likely, what got you to where you are, creativity is gonna be number one, two, or three in, in probably 95% of the cases. When we ask doctors, it was always strategy, focus, discipline. It was, it was less than 15% of the cases. So when you think about it, if the world around you is changing, like healthcare is now, and, and you're creative, and you believe that you'll do well in that scenario, you say, wow. Well, if you're an autonomous, competitive, hierarchical being, uh, then you're going to think that's bad for you. When I was at Wharton doing the weekend thing, everybody was with say, You are so lucky to be in healthcare, a two-trillion-dollar industry going through this immense change. What a great time to be in it! I said, Yeah, it is. Then I'd go to the OR lounge, and you know the the doctors would be going, Oh, I'm telling my kids not to go into healthcare. It really stinks. Same set of inputs. But the doctors were concerned because it was changing, and they wanted it to stay the same. and And folks like yourselves were saying, "What a great time to be in healthcare." So I think we have to sort of bring some of that entrepreneurism and academics together.
0: Steve, how do you square that? So there's like a paradox when you do compare healthcare to tech in terms of how we treat the the individuals. Like let's compare physicians to to software engineers, for instance. Um, I mean, software engineers are some of the best paid you know employees in the country in the world. They have, you know, perks, and you know they're they're very valued in the in the ecosystem with regards to like the economic um, power that they hold. And yet that seems to be quite the opposite of what you see in the in the physician world, where I think I read a stat that um the growth in, you know hospital spend in the last couple of years um, of that of that growth, um it was something like ridiculous. like ninety percent of that was driven by facility fee increases and like better, you know, uh, insurance negotiation, and like a, a very small fraction went to actual growth and physician compensation directly. Um, what do you see? Like, what needs to change there? And do you, do you see like hospitals and health systems like yours and other, you know, physician employer employer type organizations looking at that differently and like recognizing that that needs to change, or or is there some other lever that you think will lead to um, better financial uh, reward for for the individual physicians?
1: yeah, so Julie, I think it's it, that's a great question. Um, so I, I'll, I'll start off this way. I mean, um, the good news is that that most most people that go to medical school really really go for the right reasons, that they want to uh, they want to be a respected member of society that's uh, going to work every day doing something that's helping people. If, there's an interesting uh, panel that I was on. Where you know 20 years ago, if folks got into both Wharton and University of Pennsylvania Medical School, you know um, uh, most of them would end up going to medical school, and now most of them end up going into you know, into Wharton. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, is it a brain drain or is it we're getting the right people into medicine? I think as far as the payment models, no, we we really messed that up. So there's a great um, Upton Sinclair quote: "It's hard to get somebody to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it." And we mm-hmm. do so much of that in healthcare. So even, you know, we talk about volume to value, but almost every, everybody that's in my position literally has a uh, compensation system that's based on volume and, and RVUs. So what, what, we've, what we've tried to do at Jefferson and we're not totally successful yet is, so part of that, let me, let me just sort of give you part where part of the problem is. Part of the problem is that we have this very fragmented system with the insurers over on one side and the, and the providers over the other side. And if you don't mix them, there's almost no way you can do a good incentive system and fairly mm-hmm. compensate docs. The pandemic proved that, right? So, you know, the American, American hospitals lost hundreds of, of, of billions of dollars. Um, the American insurance companies had their best year ever because they're based on a medical loss ratio. How much did I take in in November? How little did I have to put out? So I think one of the things that we're doing at Jefferson with, with some of our mergers is becoming what we call an integrated delivery and financial system where we will have a strategic alignment with payers and actually own a Medicaid and Medicare Advantage uh, payer. Once that starts to happen, then you can fairly compensate physicians and, and other employees for basically better outcomes because you're not just providing the care, you're, you're, you're getting the percentage of premium right, from the very beginning, as opposed to having a middleman that is making sure the people that pay for the care get the care and provide the care, you know, don't talk to each other. So I think that that will be one of the, the, the main changes. The other thing that we exist on is what we call a four pillar model, the old math and the new math. The old math is academic and clinical. The new math is innovation, strategic partnerships and philanthropy. And we started to actually add innovation, strategic partnerships, philanthropy to our, uh, to our incentive system. I had a conversation today with somebody that's on this call about creating a whole third track. Most universities, medical universities have a track of research tenure, a track of physician, uh, uh, clinician educator. We're creating a track where you can become a professor of entrepreneurship and innovation with a different APT committee. So I think once that, those kind of things start to happen, then you can start to incent your docs in a very different way. The last piece is we have this incredibly perverse system of, you know, dermatologists making, you know, seven or eight times what family docs make, you know, and, and of any country in the in the world, we have the greatest discrepancy between the highest paid doc and the lowest paid doc without a whole lot of logic to it. So we always talk about our family docs being the quarterback for the system. What What my head of family practice says is, you know, you want me to be the quarterback, but you pay me like the kicker. You pay your neurosurgeons and your dermatologists quarterback salaries. So once you start to get that percentage of premium, you can start to right size uh, uh, how you pay physicians.
4: If I could just echo, I could not agree more and absolutely love the vision that you're describing for, you know, to kind of recognize that physicians aren't all made in the same shape and form. We've kind of Done it by virtue of degree programs, but that really doesn't get at what different individuals might bring to the table in terms of different skill sets, different capacities for innovation, and different capacities for value creation. And you know, and then to create structures by which to to compensate them in accordance is is just really important. If I could just add one edit um, in defense of the mudfuds who might be listening, I'd say I would. You know, I'd edit um, your phrase, Dr. Clasco. Memorization and you know move it towards an appreciation for mechanism. I do think a whole another trend that's playing out in medicine today is just the scope, scale, and speed of of clinical research on totally innovative therapies is is different, right? So maybe I see a little bit of a barbelling happening where maybe some set of physicians we really do get to tap into their understanding of of mechanism of disease and intervention with novel modalities. And maybe there's another side of the barbell where we really want to upvalue human connection and physicians' ability to do that well, to train them in that, and, and so on. But, but both will converge in,
1: in moments. Yeah, Venita, I, I couldn't agree more. Because I, I, <laughs> no, I don't
4: remember the Krebs yeah, cycle myself. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but that's but, not but, what I trained but, for. <laughs> but, but you probably had to
1: memorize it. Uh, I did, in, in I did. Chemistry. And if you had gotten a C minus in organic chemistry, you wouldn't have doing what you're doing.
4: It. But, yeah, but um, none of them none of the physician scientists liked memorizing it. So I think right. there's a separate path for, even for that subgroup.
1: Right. And <laughs> I think you bring up a great point. One of the things that we've we have we have done at Jefferson is is actually um start to look at almost like uh, minors not every doctor is the same so you know so along with the traditional curriculum you can you can minor we have actually have an md masters in design by led by an individual named uh, Bon ku we interestingly we 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 are the third oldest medical school in the country the first medical school by the way that thought seeing humans was a good idea before us, you would do all your research in academics and then practice on, that's where the, I'm gonna start my practice started. We were started by a guy named Dr. McClellan that thought that seeing humans you know, would, would, be a, would be a good idea. Um, so, so, so literally, we, we, you can, we have almost a minor system where you can get a, a minor in health policy or a minor in, in health equity um, so that not every doctor that graduates uh, is the same. And I think that's, that's the other thing we have to start Looking at it, how can we sort of unleash the creativity of docs and get them more skills in what they want to do? If they want to go into clinical research, how can we get them into that? If they want to go into innovation, how can we get them into that? We're doing some uh, internships for some of our our, our medical students and residents in some of the in some of the venture capital world out, out in Palo Alto, so they can start to feel what it's like hanging out with with software engineers and that kind of thing. So I think. Vanita, I th- there is not a one-size-fits-all. I, I could not agree more.
4: Yep.
0: Yeah. Send us your best students, Steve. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, and so let, let's go back to what you were saying about, um, you know, you're obviously currently running a health system and a, and a, a medical school, um, and and you obviously went through. I'm, I'm guessing what was a tremendously challenging year uh, with the pandemic. So you know, let's let's talk a little bit about that. You know, what 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 was that like? What surprised you? what were some of the vulnerabilities that you hadn't known about in your organization that became apparent through that time? And, you know, you can relate it back to some of the topics that we just talked about. And, um, and then on the flip side, you know, where did your organization show resilience where you hadn't appreciated it before?
1: Yeah. So, um, well, um, so, so we, you know, we got hit with the the trifecta of pain. So we, we, we had by far the largest COVID load in Philadelphia. So we, we just uh, discharged our, our 11,000th COVID patient. Um, um, so we, we had that, uh, we had the financial tsunami. We, you know, so we, we would have, we would have had about a hundred million dollar net operating income. We had a $290 million, uh, net operating loss. I mean, just to put, put that in perspective, uh, there was a point in time where gowns went up from 20 cents a gown to $12 a gown. And uh, we use about 15,000 gallons a day and we didn't change our policy of one gallon, one case, et cetera. So you can do the math on that. We have 32,000 employees. We didn't furlough uh, anybody or, or do any unplanned layoffs. So we had the, 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 the COVID load. We had the financial tsunami and then Philadelphia was right in the middle of the appropriate health inequities, um, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera, and, and our, our main hospital is literally right in, in that center. So everything that could happen, uh, happened. Um, I think the, the biggest decision, the biggest change was, and this sounds very um, dramatic, but we were making life and death decisions every day. <laughs> the kind of things that maybe you would, you know, would have to make once a month were literally every day. We were having literally all-in meetings three times a day. Um, and, you know, where do we put ventilators and, and, you know, who's going to get what? What really saved us, honestly, uh, was our mission. So when, when I got to Philadelphia, every of the academic medical centers here, mission was to um, be the premier academic medical center in Philadelphia. We changed ours to to We Improve Lives and, and, and getting health care in any address. And, and that really saved us. Um, we had invested in, in about $30 million in telehealth in 2013 in something called Jeff Connect. We had done 100,000 visits between 2015 and 2020, and then 100,000 visits between January and March of, uh, of, of, of 2020. And, you know, and so we had sort of unlimited supply. The other thing that we had going for us is we had done six mergers in, in five years. And, but every one of them was with governance as currency. So it wasn't where we acquired something. We would, we would bring equal board members in. And that creates a really tough integration problem because all of a sudden I have new bosses. Well, COVID forced us and allowed us to integrate and think like a system at a whole different level. We probably were able to accelerate that by four, four or five years. I think. I think. Look, the biggest vulnerability was uh, when I got there in 2013. You know, I, we we talked about the old math and the new math. You know, just sort of tell you a funny story. You know, I. I I got here, and Jefferson had been a pretty conservative place, always been a great place to provide care, but I, my first meeting with the faculty, I'd been there a couple months, and I said, I'm an investor. Get me really, really, really excited about Jefferson. And one of the faculty said, well, I think if you give us a lot of money, we can get closer to Penn and NIH funding and U.S. News & World Report. I said, well, sort of the opposite of exciting. you know. And, you know, and, and, and we, we literally created a model of what could we become that would differentiate us? And it really got to this, what if we were a 195 year old academic medical center thinking like a startup company? And and that for a lot of reasons became a very important part of our growth from a $1 billion two hospital system to to in July, what will be an 18 hospital system because we just um, completed the um, FTC review of another merger. but, but the biggest vulnerability we had was the old math, right? We were, we were still so dependent on in-person tuition and hospital revenue. And it, so on the one hand, it proved to me that the old math, new math equation was the right thing that I really had to invest in innovation, strategic partnerships and philanthropy. The two things that did the best in 2020 were philanthropy, which, which overachieved, and some of the innovations and strategic partnerships that we had invested in or co-developed that became IPOs and brought us somewhere around $40 million worth of, of, of net operating income. Can you, Maybe, share, can, you, yeah. can you
0: share an example of what, what one of those strategic partnerships was?
1: Yeah, so, um, so one of them was, so you know, we, we in, a, in a very unusual usual merger um, uh, merged a uh, uh, health science university with the number three fashion design university in the country that was called Philadelphia University. And we had uh, co-developed a, uh, a carbonized hemp wearable uh, that became the basis uh, for, a, uh, uh, for a for-profit company that's on the Australian Stock Exchange called Ecofiber. And um, you know, uh, those, those shares vest and you know, we'll, we'll be able to sell them for about $40 million. We had invested, so we, we had started a model where we said things that we co-develop um, we, are going to, we are going to invest in. So we had invested in American Well very early because we were one of the very early folks with American Well. Um, you know, uh, now we have, we have eight or nine um, different VC-related things where we are co-investors. So my absolute is I don't ever want to go to HIMSS again and have 950 24 year olds tell me how their app is gonna transform healthcare <laughs> if I buy it. You know, um, You know. so, and, and I wanna get away from that, that app fragmentation. So what we've done in our innovation pillar is look at how we can create a portfolio of companies that we're co-investing in. Um, that can be really a, a diversification of our portfolio. So I think that the biggest vulnerability there had been, you know, the reliance on on in person tuition and hospital revenue. And then I guess the last thing I'd say is that um, it was both a, a, a resilience and a, a challenge. And that was um, and Vanita, and I think you'll, you'll agree with me on this, that, you know, as scientists, we live in a P less than .001 mentality. We have to be sure about something before, before we put it out. Um, but I kept trying to get my senior folks to think in a very, very different way, you know? And, and you know, I, I gave them all the information from Jeff Bezos on disagree and commit. And I think, I think what happened is, because there was so much incoming, that we really got a lot better at being creative, nimble and flexible and disagreeing and committing. And the concept being that once we had about 60% of the data, you know, let's make a decision. And whether you agree with it or not, that's what we're going to do. And we almost had to do that because we just had so many, so many uh, inputs on, you know, on, on on a daily and in some cases hourly basis. So I think the end result is we are more resilient, more adaptive, more integrated. In some cases, more creative, nimble, and flexible—both um, uh, clinical and academic—pillar than we were before the pandemic. Hey,
0: Steve, just, a really great point. Just real quick, um, just for like ten seconds, sort of yeah. economic context setting. Uh, for those who are not familiar with like hospital and health system economics, forty million dollars might not sound a lot, like a, to a six billion dollar system, but actually, it's quite meaningful to think about the operating margin. Right. So. Can you just walk the sort of folks who are not familiar with health system economics about like your margin profile yeah. and how you think that might actually change in the future?
1: Yeah. So um, so not so not not for profit systems, especially ours, that take care of a lot of underserved patients. So just to just to give you an example, uh, an 800 bed hospital closed right next to us, of, of which 95 percent of their patients were or government-funded, or, or no insurance at all. So a good part of our population is, is, is or frankly, money losing. So so, um, for, for, for our entity, if, if best practices would be a 3% uh, net operating margin, or, you know, 9% EBITDA. Um, because of our payer mix, we, we, were, we were running at a one or 1.5% net operating margin. Now that includes spending $400 million you know, for, for Epic and all the other stuff. But the net operating margin of what we can reinvest at the end of the year traditionally had been somewhere around 50 million, 60 million, 70 million um, for our entire two-campus university and 14 hospital system. So to be able to cash out, you know, 40 million dollars of things in on, in the innovation world or things that we had co-developed or things that we had just invested in that became IPOs and add to that is a, is a really big deal. And, and by the way, I mean, that was with minimal investments. You know, um, I think I probably have a couple of members of my board on this. Our board has just approved a much larger uh, 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 tranche of dollars to partner with VCs and founders and early stage companies uh, um, so that Jefferson is, is a big part of that. We don't want to be a VC, just like you don't want to be an obstetrician. But what, but what we want to do is if we're, going to, if we're going to be part of something, if we're going to be, you know, a founding partner, we, we want to, we want to uh, grow along with you. My aha moment when I was at the University of South Florida is, is somebody came to me uh, and, and we had helped them create a company. I won't name the company, but it was like, you know, we were the first customer. I, I got involved with it. Came back about eight months later and said, hey, Steve, I, I want to take you out to dinner because, you know, we absolutely could not have done this without you. You were our first customer. Steve, you helped us. And, you know, we just we just went public and had, it was X, you know, I said, boy, that better be a hell of a dinner because, you know, um, if, if we were that important. So I think I think we're, we're trying to, you know, be that kind of partner that we can be by being that creative, nimble, flexible um, group that can help you. You've you mentioned
3: creativity now a bunch of times. I have a curious question for you. Given, you know, uh, A, how big and complex a health system is and how it operates in, very, in many ways, you operate in a very constrained environment. Um, yeah. When you talk about creativity, how much of pushing the team to be creative is, you know, we know the destination, we know what we want to be, so let's find a creative way to get there. Versus um, being creative in the, you know, let's actually redefine the destination. Let's let's reimagine what what a health system can and should be versus let's be let's be creative on how we get to the ideal state of what we already think the health an ideal health system is. Yes,
1: yeah, so I, I think it, it's it's more the latter. Um, so you know, one of the exercises we've done is is sort of like a, what's the pandemic of twenty thirty look like, right? <laughs> you know, um, you know that your healthcare data is continuously streamed to the cloud, AI bots are constantly analyzing it for any changes. Uh, the early symptoms of the new virus are immediately identified and anyone throughout the world who exhibit those early systems was notified and asked to socially isolated software is sent to your, you know, Internet of Things or your home 3D printer could begin. So that was a creative exercise in, OK, if that's going to be the pandemic of 2030, what things can we do today to start to get us ready for that? Um, and, and what kind of companies do we want to partner with to be, to be able to do that? Some of that is um, is really starting to look at design of the human experience in healthcare. Um, so, like I said, we have we have a, 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 a an MD master in design, looking at everything from smart cities to what happens from home. And then the, the, the most important thing is that we have started with a vision of reimagining healthcare education discovery to create unparalleled value. And and the reason I keep bringing up mission and vision is. Um, that that affects how we pay people. 25% of my personal incentives are, are based on reducing health inequity in, in, in Philadelphia, most of which I have no control over. But if we're gonna improve lives, I can't have all my incentive be based on how many people do we get into our beds of our hospital. I had done, I had done a study um, of health systems in the country and CEO incentives. And and health systems, websites and boards were always about innovation, community engagement, diversity, inclusion. CEO incentives were always about EBITDA, hospital census, U.S. News and World Report, and do the doctors uh, uh, that I play golf with like us. So my conclusion in that article was if you want to look at what the health system is going to look like 10 years from now, ignore what's on the website, ignore what the board says, and look at how the CEO gets paid. So we've tried to take a creative approach to 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 all of those things. And then the, the and then that's true of our students also. We're one of the first universities in the country where every every student starting this year has to take at least two very, very, very core courses in creativity. Our most popular one this year is beekeeping. And you 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 know you might ask, you know, why why um PhDs need need a course in beekeeping. They probably don't, but getting getting you thinking outside of that of that mindset is we think is really important.
0: Super interesting. That's awesome. Steve. Um, with regards to kind of you know, the, I love that you know, what does the pandemic of twenty thirty look like? And using that framework to kind of work backwards. Um, you also mentioned earlier kind of the notion of government funded um co- like payer coverage, and that you know that's kind of a money losing proposition, which you hear very often from health system leaders that you know, you lose, um, you know, a margin on, on the Medicare, Medicaid patients, and then you make it up on the commercial side. But, you know, to what degree, like a lot of times it's it's talked about as a reimbursement rate problem versus a cost structure problem, um, right? And, and so given what you just described, like to what degree, like could could Jefferson be a 40 percent margin business in the future? And, and like what does that path look like? And how does how does like the virtual component of what we're talking about factor into that?
1: So, um, yeah, I, I think, first of all, you, you have to look at, at what's wrong with our system. And, you know, <laughs> that would take a lot more time than we have. But I, I'll go back to um, I'll go back to uh, when I was at Wharton, one of my mentors was a guy named Bill Kissick. He wrote a book called Medicine Di- Medicine's Dilemmas, Infinite Needs, Finite Resources. That, that was written 40 years ago. It could have been written today. And he talked about the iron triangle of access, quality, and cost. And, you know, you remember your ninth grade geometry, you increase one angle, you got to decrease another. He said 40 years ago, if anybody ever tells you they're gonna increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it's not gonna be disruptive and painful, then they're not telling the truth. So think about healthcare policy over the last 12 years. You know, President Obama said the ACA will increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it won't be painful. That was a quote. Well, that clearly can't be true. President Trump said, I think it's going to be terrific, fantastic, unbelievable, and huge, and it was none of the four. <laughs> so, so at the end of the day, we haven't had the courage to this point of disrupting what needs to happen, whether that's cost structure, insurance, or pharma. Um, and, and, and what we've done a really good job is, is, is the blame game. So, so what I would say is this, we know what the problem is. So if, if you think about economics for a second, when the ACA got passed in 2010, 2011, and we had to get a dollar and a quarter down to a dollar to give everybody access, what are the first stocks you would have sold based on everything else that you know about economics? Probably anything in the middle, like you would have said. Oh, I have to sell all my United Healthcare and Cigna and Aetna stocks because that's the middleman. In every other situation where you know where there's been a disruption, the middleman has gone down. Oh, and maybe I'll sell some of my pharma and medical device stocks uh, because supply chain costs usually uh, go down. Well, you know that would have been a bad move because other than maybe you know Apple and Tesla, you know healthcare insurers had the greatest return on equity uh, since the ACA of of any sector, of any sector. Pharma was probably right behind them. So how can all those costs go up? And by the way, for-profit providers, same way. HCA has been one of the best stocks over the last 10 years. So, So the simple fact is, what we have done is give more people access to a fundamentally broken, fragmented, expensive, and inequitable healthcare system and then hope that the system will transform, but we've done nothing to make it transform. So,
2: so, so Stephen, you transformed Jefferson. You, you, you know, you disrupted it from within. What would you? What would you? I know this might be a longer conversation, but like, what would you do? Where would you start to, well, to transform our healthcare?
1: Well, well, so, so the first thing. I mean, it, it, if if President Biden asked me, you know, what's the first thing I do? The first thing I would do is come up with a recognition that. Um, we have an incredibly bizarre and perverse incentive healthcare system. And I would create a 9-11 commission for healthcare. You know, if you think about 9-11, we went through a month where the Democrats blamed the Republicans, the Republicans blamed the Democrats, but at some point they got together and said, we failed to keep the country safe. And they created the 9-11 commission. It wasn't perfect, but it was an under the radar six month. Let's get some disruptive folks. Let's get people from security. Let's get people from different entities together. If we could get, you know, a a prominent Democrat and a prominent Republican to say, you know what, the ACA hasn't totally worked by any means of transforming the healthcare system. Republicans really had no plan. Let's create a 9-11 Commission for Healthcare. And really, we know what we have to look at. We have to look at things like end-of-life costs. We have to look at how can we incent folks to to get care at home. We have to look at how we pay doctors. We have to look at creating strategic alignments between payers and providers. There's, a, there's an entrepreneur that, that I'm very friendly with and on one of his boards that now is getting together with Blue Cross Blue of Arizona and five other uh, 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 blues. And Jefferson's looking at that also, literally just to look at new models of how physicians and, and uh, providers and, and payers can get together. So so I think that 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 the What I would look at is how can we work with um, your sector? Uh, how can we work with payers? How can we work with providers with an overall goal of cutting total costs down by 25%? And then the other thing I would do is I would create, um, I, I would have the Broadband Act of 2022 because the, the big shame in this country is that we do not, 22% of people in, in certain zip codes in Philadelphia do not have broadband. So every, all the good things we did with telehealth or online education were not available to them. They happen to be a preponderance of underserved folks. They happen to be a preponderance of, of, of black and brown folks, which is just an absolute national tragedy. In, in Philadelphia, if you, if, if you did a multiple choice test, said your number one reason to get into the hospital with COVID or die is A, not wearing a mask, be not social distancing, see your genetic code or do your zip code, it's your zip code. And a lot of that was because of connectivity. So the, the, the fact is we've known for a long time, it's almost like a, 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 it just comes out easily. 80% of what we spend money on in, in, in healthcare is, is, is 20% of the outcomes. So I, I would really start to incent folks to basically get healthcare out to, to the home and let hospitals fail that are that are too expensive. Um, there are hospitals in Philadelphia that have leapfrog yeah. these and are the most expensive. And so I've,
2: I've, yeah. I really like that vision. I think you know you're talking about almost like a new sanitation. You know where these right. are just baseline, where you know we don't uh, everyone gets water and sewers. And the question is, what is that new baseline? That's the old baseline is like 100 years old. Um, I am a little nervous though that like what you're describing the panel, uh, you know the commission. Unless like you're one of the people on it, we might just get the Healthcare version of the Department of Homeland Security, so I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: maybe you know. that was a bad example, but you know I think I think if you started with certain assumptions, I mean, so what, what, what I would charge this 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 panel with, and I would try to get a bunch of of creative people. There was a. Uh modern healthcare a couple of years ago had, had, you know, they had their most influential and they had the twelve disruptors. I happen to be one of them, but they, they literally, you know, those are the kind of people that would get together. But if you start with the assumptions that we're gonna get paid based on quality, cost, patient experience and outcomes, that hospital stays will be commoditized, that our that our doctors and nurses will have to coexist and cooperate with deep learning. You know, it makes me laugh. It took us 50 years to get doctors and nurses to work together. Now we're going to have to get doctors and robots to work together. <laughs> that, that, that we need to select and educate humans to be better humans than the robots. And that population health, predictive analytics, and social determinants start to move to the mainstream of clinical care payment models and medical education. If you started with those assumptions and put smart people in the room, I think I think you, you could make a, a change. We have to do something. I mean, we, we it, it's ridiculous that... That end of life. I mean, let me give you like a real life example. In, um, if if your ninety-two-year-old Uncle Frank um, has had uh, uh, you know a couple strokes and now is is in renal failure, um, in every other country that person would go to hospice and 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 move to the next stage. In this country, um, hospitals, nephrologists, and for-profit dialysis companies. Are way incented to 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 do dialysis for another couple of weeks to keep Uncle Frank right. quote alive, and and grand nephew Joe when says well you know is this the best thing says well you, you want him to live a couple more years don't you and by the way you don't have to pay for it Medicare will pay for it you know so so how we get to some kind of rational system that doesn't get caught in the whole you know Sarah Pell and that's death panels and that kind of thing is 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 where we're gonna to have to head or we're, we're constantly gonna be dealing with this issue of people having to mortgage their house for cancer care, et cetera. It's just, it's just ridiculous.
0: Yeah.